podcast of the Jack, Joseph, and Morton Mandel Humanities Center at Cuyahoga Community College. I'm Matt Jordan, the Dean of the Center and the host of the show. Thanks for joining us as we seek to live deeper, richer, more fully human lives through engagement with the humanities. My guest today is Rebecca Brown-Asmo, the Executive Director of Ohio Humanities. Rebecca is an experienced nonprofit leader who has a passion for art, history, community development, and literature. Prior to joining Ohio Humanities in 2021, Rebecca was the CEO of Boys and Girls Clubs of Central Ohio for 10 years. An alumna of Georgetown University and an adopted Ohioan since 2004, she lives in Columbus's 5th by Northwest neighborhood with her two children, Molly and Davis. Rebecca Brown-Asma, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you making the time to chat. It's uh, so good. I've seen um, Ohio Humanities' name uh, for years, and this is, to my great shame, the first time that I've had a chance to connect with you. So it's really great to, uh, to be sitting here with you and hear a little bit more about you and your work. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind starting off just telling us a little bit about where you're from. Um, I mentioned the intro that you're a Georgetown alum. Uh, how, how you, excuse me, how you wound up there and um, how your career unfolded since then. Yes. Yeah, so I, um, so first it's awesome to be talking about the humanities. Mm-hmm. I, they're my passion, my hobbies. So, um, this is a lot of fun. So I grew up in the Washington DC area. My, um, father worked for the federal government, was mm-hmm. a cartographer, which is a map maker, um, and a climate scientist. And so, um, growing up in the DC area, like, I was able to go to the Smithsonian all the time, so I feel like I had a household that was really steeped in the humanities, even though I didn't even really know it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up going to Georgetown. I actually really wanted to go to University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, um, but just because of some of the financing stuff, Georgetown was going to be way cheaper. So my parents gave me the choice of going to Georgetown or paying the balance. So well, I went I, to Georgetown. I have to say, I don't know that I, I expected to say that Georgetown was the discount option. Uh. I know. not. So I ended up going there, which was kind of in my hometown, but I loved it. It was a great experience. And it's a beautiful campus. I've had the chance to visit there a couple of times. It's a beautiful campus and the whole city is your classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, like, I was never as a young person, super planful. So, you know, I don't know things. um, But when I got to uh, Georgetown's campus, I ended up taking an art history class with a professor named Allison Hilton, who um, used to help smuggle. She was a professor of Russian art, and she used to help smuggle art out of the Soviet Union. Um, and she was just really cool and interesting and fascinating. Um, and so I started taking more classes with her. And then before I knew it, I was an art history major. Um, and, which, and was that something that your parents received okay? I mean, different, different people have different reactions when they say, when somebody says, Mom, Dad, I'm, I'm going to major yeah, in art history. So most adults would say, what are you going to do with that degree? Mm-hmm. Um, but my parents were pretty cool. And like starting <laughs> from a very young age, they were like, as long as you're interested in something and curious about something, they kind of let it ride. Mm-hmm. Um, and that went from like, I was a voracious consumer of like Danielle Steele romance novels and they'd be like, whatever, as long as you're reading, that's all we care about. Um, And so they were always supportive of that. And they were like, well, you'll figure it out. Like you're going to be on your own after you graduate. Mm. So we'll, you know, we think you'll find something. But Washington, D.C. is like a fabulous classroom 
um, for all types of students, but especially if you're studying art history. Sure, yeah. Oh, that's great. So uh, we'll probably come back to this sort of thing later, but I'm, I'm curious to ask, I mean, if, if one of your own kids came home from college and said, Mom, it's art history for me, uh, would you be excited about that? Is... So I actually hope my kids will get humanities <laughs> degrees oh, right. or at least have <laughs> some sort of focus in the humanities. I mean, ultimately... I want them to do what they're interested in and what they're curious about and what makes them feel excited about mm. learning. Mm -hmm. I personally think the humanities are a great space for that to happen. Mm. Um, so fingers crossed, we'll have <laughs> like, I don't know, a philosophy major or art history major or <laughs> well, something like that. Well, that sounds like good to that. me. That's what my degrees are. So. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, if, if you were talking to other parents, because I, I know, I mean, you and I are both parents and... I know that there's plenty of people in our peer groups who would say, are you nuts, Rebecca? Like, you, would you really be okay with your, your kid going to college and studying art? Like, what would your response be to, to that person? So I have had that conversation with people before, and, and this may seem like a little bit of a long answer. So in one way, I'd say, you know what, you're right. Like, when I was studying art history, I did not get a ton of like what might be considered practical education. Mm -hmm. So I wish I had learned how to read a profit and loss statement. I wish I had some like basics in management. Mm -hmm. um, but what I did get and what I think is so valuable and what you might not get if you're ha you know going for more of like a technical cr credential is I develop the ability to think really critically and mm -hmm. to draw my own conclusions about things and to be in deep conversation with people um, and to write. I mean, mm -hmm. the writing skills were always, I feel like, the best asset I got out of an yeah. art history degree it was like having to just go and you look at a picture and then you have to take all these other you know, things from different contexts and, and bring them together into mm -hmm. a cohesive argument. Um, so I always, I think it's a, it's a good thing. It gives you flexibility. It gives you, um, if you, you know, most people don't really know what they want to do when they're 22 years old. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you leave with an incredible ability to, to think, um, and to just be an engaged person with other people, mm -hmm. you could change your mind at 40 and, <laughs> and have a new career trajectory and you'll probably be okay. What I would add to that, though, is like I do think sometimes those practical skills, you know, like a little bit of accounting or econ yeah. <laughs> are important. And so while my ideal would be that, you know, humanities programs would automatically infuse those into their degrees, you know, I think there's a lot of ways that you can yeah. develop that. Well, that's that's encouraging to hear. And I mean, it certainly fits with my experience. I, I know that's... Um a lot of colleges and universities are starting to add mandatory internships of various kinds for their humanities majors. And um, it's also interesting when you, when you look at the surveys that are out there, when people ask business leaders, you know, what, what sorts of traits do you look for in new hires or what kinds of things, what skills do uh, college graduates need that they don't always bring to the table? The, the predominant answers are things like, we need people who can think critically. We need people who are good writers, who are effective communicators. And all those things that you know, have always been at the heart of a humanities education are exactly what employers say they need. So some of the work is just getting that word out there, I think. Absolutely. And I think also helping, you know, for a brief um, period in my career, I worked in community relations at, uh, at a bank. Mm -hmm. And um, 
sometimes I would have to write reports about stuff. And, and so some of the leaders at the organization were like, oh, hey, you're a really great writer. Do you think you could help some of our commercial <laughs> loan officers? Uh-huh. Um, and, and so I think like you didn't really need like an econ or a business degree to be a commercial loan officer, mm. but actually the ones who could write well and communicate well and make a really good pitch um, and have some imagination, those were the ones who were most successful. So mm. you can have a really successful business degree with a strong foundation in the humanities. And I think it just makes you like an overall more interesting and, and curious person. Yeah. And, you know, I would also say like, your career is a really important part of your life, but your career does not automatically mean that you're going to live a life of consequence. Mm. And so, mm. um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, our team was talking recently about the Surgeon General's um, report on loneliness. And, yeah. and there's been all this talk about loneliness and whether we're talking about young girls or young boys or, you know, just people in general mm-hmm. after the pandemic are really struck with loneliness, a lot of the proposed solutions to loneliness are the humanities. Mm. They may not be taking place in institutions of higher education, but they really are people connecting with one another and finding meaning and finding beauty. And so I think, you know, we need to be careful. Like, of course, it's important that you can support yourself economically. Right. And it's and nice I, to be able to buy groceries, right? Abs- <laughs> I mean, it's critical, right? It's absolutely critical. But it's also important that we foster, um, you know, the ability to live a meaningful life. Yeah. And and that looks like a lot of different things. That's awesome. I- <laughs> I guess we can just wrap up there because that would be incredible. <laughs> um, but I mean, really, Rebecca, that, that resonates so deeply. I, I've never said this explicitly um, on one of these episodes, but th- the reason that this podcast is called More Human is because it's grounded in the conviction that, you know, we <laughs> we don't always live really human lives. There's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of things that um, take away from living authentically as human beings and, and what you were just saying about community, about art and beauty and depth, you know, there, there are dimensions of the human experience that our culture does not always do much of anything to enhance or encourage. Uh, and the hope is that engaging with these areas of the humanities um, can help us do that. But I want to get back to you because <laughs> we got really deep, really fast there. And, and I want to circle back to some of this stuff. Um, but, but as far as your biography goes, I think we're still stuck with you at Georgetown. We don't know oh, where you yeah. went from there or, or how your career unfolded. How'd you wind up um, heading from DC as a college student uh, and a young person to uh, uh, central Ohio in the 2020s? Well, so when I graduated from college, I ended up getting a, like an assistant position at a museum in DC called the National Museum of Women in the Arts. And uh, I ended up pretty quickly moving into a fundraising role. Mm. Um, and you know, found that I liked that and found that I was good at that. And um, mm. And a lot of what you do in fundraising is relationship building. So mm-hmm. it's it's being curious about people. It's finding out what they're interested in. It's, you know, finding out how you can connect them to the mission. Um, at the same time, I ended up meeting, it's now my ex-husband. Um, and so th- while that sounds bad, it's not a bad ending to this story. But he was from Columbus, Ohio. Um, and so I was living in Washington, D.C., which is a very expensive city. And, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit of like uh, like cutthroat in the way mm-hmm. that like 
people work really late, it, you know, a lot of focus on what your job is. Um, and so when I met my, um, who eventually became my husband, he lived in Columbus, Ohio. And I thought, you know what, that's like such a, it's a less expensive city. Mm -hmm. I ended up moving out there. Um, and again, found another job in fundraising at the Ohio History Connection. Okay. Um, so that was a cool job because I was in this new state. I had never even visited the state of Ohio huh. before um, before I met my husband. And so I had this job at the Historical Society and I was able to kind of travel all over the state and meet different people and, um, you know, connect donors to certain projects mm -hmm. that we were doing. Um, and kind of by accident, I found myself uh, several years later in a fundraising job at the Boys and Girls Club. And like less than a year after I took that job, I ended up in the CEO role. Kind wow. of like <laughs> lots of sometimes I, I, I'm, I'm, I turn 43 tomorrow and well, happy birthday. I, thank you. And I keep saying like, this is going to be the point in my life where I'm actually going to start planning things and be more purposeful. Hmm. Um, some things have always happened by accident, but you know, I didn't expect to find myself in kind of a human service type job, but you know, the boy working at the boys and girls club changed my life. It mm. gave me, um, it's such a purposeful mission. It's a, it's a program that provides out of school time programming, um, you know, for free to, mm. to kids, um, mm -hmm. throughout the city. And so I just, I developed incredible friendships and relationships. You know, there are kids, they're in their twenties now who I met when they were kids at the boys and girls club who are still friends of mine today. Wow. <laughs> um, but I also learned how to like, you know, lead a team and do a capital campaign and build mm. and renovate buildings. And it was just like, it was an incredible learning experience for me. Um, it's an incredibly hard job. It's, you know, you really see what so many Americans um, are facing, um, especially when it comes to things like poverty yeah, or, yeah. you know, just social justice issues. Um, and so it was, it was incredible. But after 10 years in that role, it was pretty stressful. Um, I just needed a little bit of a change. Mm. And um, so Ohio Humanities came along and I, I truthfully did not even know what Ohio Humanities was. I have a humanities degree, but I was Googling before the first interview, like what are the humanities <laughs> just to make sure I knew, like I knew sort of, but, um, but uh, you know, I wasn't really aware of this whole uh, you know, system of state humanities councils mm -hmm. that are connected to the National Endowment for the Humanities. And, and, and can you elaborate on that for folks who um, still don't know about? Yeah, so Ohio Humanities, um, our, our mission is to share stories that spark conversation and inspire ideas. Mm -hmm. So I like to say that because it mm -hmm. takes away the whole, what are the humanities question? <laughs> um, but, what, but how we accomplish that mission is we give grants and we run programs that support um, storytellers throughout the state. And that could be museums, local historical societies, documentary filmmakers, independent journalists. Um, and so we have a partnership with the National Endowment for the Humanities, and they provide us with a chunk of funding every single year. But because we are a nonprofit organization, we're also free to raise money through philanthropy, um, to raise money from state governments, um, and then really our purpose is just to foster the humanities in the public sphere. With a particular emphasis on storytelling, you said, is that a fair way to put it or is it broader than that? So we, and, and actually our mission statement changed fairly recently, um, right after I started because what 
I was finding was that when I said the word humanities, the first question I got was what are the humanities? Yeah. And then I found myself listing academic disciplines mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. come from college campuses. And I mean, just from my experience, whether it's working at the Boys and Girls Club or just dealing with the fact of the matter that less than 30% of Ohioans have a four-year degree or mm -hmm. higher, I just knew that that was not going to be the way to describe what we do in a way that would make us relatable yeah. to the to the people that I knew would be the greatest advocates for us. Mm. So we call it storytelling because I think that's the simplest way to describe, you know, that could be anything from oral histories to an exhibit at a museum to mm. journalism to documentary film. You know, we really felt like the umbrella over that was storytelling. So yeah. we we don't really have a way to define storytelling. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's really interesting because what I was, uh, what I almost asked you a few minutes ago, um, before we got back onto kind of your career path, was how do you define the humanities? And then you said, well, you know, we're trying not to define the humanities. Uh, and, and it's a funny thing working in this discipline professionally because um, it's one of those areas where uh, people who do it professionally don't always agree with each other about what it is that they do. Um, yeah. are, are you willing to, to wade into those waters, or you want to keep it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, and, and not give it so, so sometimes I feel like I'm just probably not qualified <laughs> enough or credentialed enough to argue like what is a, t a subject that's included or not included. I mean, you are the executive director of Ohio Humanities, <laughs> Rebecca. I don't, I don't know how to tell you this. I try to keep it relatable. So like I, I was testifying today in at the state house in mm -hmm. front of the state senate. And I just said, you know, the humanities come to life, um, you know, when we read, when we mm. talk to one another, when we disagree with one another, when we're um, talking about something that we love or a piece of art mm. and um, or when we're thinking about something. And I like to keep it like that because I think everybody does that yeah. in their day. And I think um, when when I think about questions of something like the urban and rural divide, um, and we focus a lot on our differences, but like all of us are reading something at some point or talking yeah. about something or engaging with other people. And I just think it's like a really great baseline to start from. Yeah, that's and really nice you point can of find our similarities more than our differences or I, I don't know who ranks higher, who um, I, I just think it's a really What's good really place to start. really the humanities and what is it, right? That sort of thing. I feel like there's right. probably a lot of people that disagree with me about that. And Well, I, I'm not one of them. How about that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, we've realized at Cuyahoga Community College and with our Mandel Scholars Academy, which is a humanities-driven program, we've realized over the last couple of years that a lot of our students, even after a semester or two with us, aren't really sure how to articulate what the humanities are. I mean, a lot of people hear that word and they think humanitarianism, right? They think mm -hmm. doing service projects and things like that, which is wonderful, but it's really not the humanities in the sense that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So the language we've started using uh, is the, uh, the language of thinking deeply and broadly about the human experience yep. and kind of anything that could fit under that <laughs> heading we're happy to count as the humanities. Uh, and I, I think that's been helpful for us. Yeah, and I think sometimes, it, you know, sometimes I'll also describe it as like the process of understanding mm. our shared human experience. Mm -hmm. um, and that leaves it open. And I think, you know, sometimes that can make certain people feel defensive or 
uncomfortable, but I'm okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. A little bit of discomfort is often a a feature uh, rather than a bug in in quality. And I also think it's okay to disagree, right? Like, um, you know, I have certain biases, and and other people have other biases, and I think us being in conversation about those things is the most beneficial oh, that's great. You know, exercise we can engage in. I, I feel like you could be giving the speech that I give to our new Mandel scholars every fall <laughs> at orientation. That's, that's, uh, I, I couldn't agree more strongly, so thank you for that. Um, though I'd also thank you if I disagreed. As we <laughs> exactly. Just, just exactly. talk about the value of disagreement. Exactly. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of skimming the, uh, uh, the things that I wanted to chat with you about. We've already covered a lot of, of territory. I did want to ask if people are interested in learning more about the work that you do with Ohio Humanities, where should they go? What, what could they check out? So they could start with our website, uh, ohiohumanities.org. Um, and there's so many ways that they can engage. Um, we offer grants to nonprofit organizations that are registered in the state of Ohio. Um, we have a ton of great resources, um, from links to some documentary films that we've either supported or produced ourselves. We have some great resources for discussions. Um, so definitely check out our website, sign up for our e-newsletter because we're always talking about, you know, as an organization, I think the most exciting work that we engage in is supporting the work of our funded partners throughout the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what's really great about my job is I get to talk about all the cool work that they're doing. Yeah. Um, and so you can learn about documentary film festivals that we're supporting around the state, book festivals, journalism projects, um, you know, and I think we... We've got our team members' emails on the website. So I would encourage anybody who's curious, um, you know, to take a look. I would, I would also add that, um, it, that we have job opportunities, paid internship opportunities. Wow. So just, you know, for young people especially or really learners of all ages, keep your eyes peeled for those opportunities. Oh, that's excellent. Um, are most of the grants you give, are they typically to organizations? Are they typically to individuals? Is it a, a mix of both? So all of our grants that we give are to organizations. Now, you don't have to have an IRS 501c3 designation, but you do have to be a registered nonprofit with the state of Ohio. Um, We do recognize, though, that it is important for us to find ways to support individuals working in the humanities. Um, And we've started to do that specifically through partnerships to support documentary filmmakers. Hmm. Um, And so we have a partnership with the Wexner Center for the Arts. It's going to be a multi-year partnership, um, a documentary film residency. So a filmmaker will be getting, and actually it'll be up to five filmmakers a year, um, will get a stipend, they'll get an apartment to live in, and they'll get full access to the um, film and video studio and the team at the film and video studio at the Wexner Center for the Arts um, to help produce a project at any phase. It could be in the planning phase or in post-production. And so we're really excited about that because we know um, there are some great documentary filmmakers from Ohio, but we're very interested in helping to foster that kind of like next gen. I say next gen, it doesn't necessarily mean Hmm. young from an age standpoint, but some of these emerging filmmakers they're telling stories in really compelling ways oh that's really exciting that's great i I know the uh, the film industry has been um i I think 
from a lot of people's perspective, surprisingly uh, strong in Ohio. There's, there's been a lot of films made. I know certainly uh, in Cleveland, where Tri-C is based, um, that's been an important uh, there site for filmmaking. Uh, our, uh, Sean uh, Reck, who's a filmmaker who does a lot of films having to do with like criminal justice system, mm-hmm. um, I mean, he has a huge studio in Cleveland. And he was told, like, get out of Ohio. You cannot be successful in making documentary films in this state. Go to California, go to New York. And he said, no, I want to do this in Cleveland. (laughs) And he's making films that are sold to all of the major streaming platforms. And he's supporting a lot of emerging filmmakers and, like, really a whole ecosystem there. That's awesome. Um, Well, moving back into uh, the humanities more broadly, um, as you look at the landscape right now, Rebecca, are are you feeling optimistic? Are you feeling pessimistic? Uh, Are are those labels too broad? What's your kind of take on where we are right now as a culture uh, facing the humanities? So I'm naturally an optimist, so I'm going to take an optimistic point of view. Um, And I'm also, I'm not a historian by training, but I'm a lover of history. And, And so when you, if you're somebody who's read a lot about all different types of history, whether it's in this country or other countries, a lot of what we're going through today, like it's not the first time that this country has, Mm -hmm. you know, really (laughs) kind of wrestled with the health of democracy. It's not the first time as a human civilization that, you know, we've wrestled with these issues. So I do take comfort in the fact that, you know, we have figured this out before and and I think we will figure this out again. I also think a lot about just like the human species temporal range. And I try to like not take ourselves too seriously (laughs) because if you think about like in the grand scheme of the universe, I mean, we are the tiniest of the tiniest of the Mm. tiniest of blips. (laughs) And, um, So I just try to remember that, like a lot of, you know, and what I can do is just focus on doing good and caring about the people around me. And, you know, I hope that doesn't make me sound naive. I certainly do worry about a lot of the issues that we're facing, whether it's climate or democracy or, um, you know, just economic equity. But it's also true that you can do a lot more for the people in your direct sphere of influence than you can, right, at, at a large scale. Um, yeah, I try not to worry about... maybe there's some, there's some about... wisdom, right, in, in focusing on yeah. the things that you can... Yeah, and I, and I am an optimist, and it's like, you know, I think humans have a okay track record of figuring it out, and... Um, <laughs> Yeah. If we don't, I don't know. I mean, it's it's just kind of like in the grand scheme of things, we're we're really really small. Yeah, no, that's true. And I, I want to say for the record, for anybody who's listening and is becoming alarmed, I think I can say on Rebecca's behalf that neither of us is opposed to political action or advocating for social oh, no, policy. No, no, like and that, I engage deeply in all of those <laughs> activities in a lot of different ways. But I just say, you know, I I I think the. And that's one of the reasons why I think the humanities are so important, because like, if we mine our past, whether it's our recent past or our, you know, species, the existence of our species, mm. like we can find a lot of the solutions, like mm. the bones are there. Um, so I find a lot of hope and optimism in the humanities. I find a lot of hope and optimism in young people. I always have. And, you know, I think 
um, when I was at the boys and girls clubs, like that was always the most inspiring thing mm -hmm. was, was young people. And so, um, I have a lot of hope. Yes. You know, there are, there are a lot of challenges, but I think if we can kind of lean on lessons from the past, especially continue to engage in the humanities mm. and, and just do what we can. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, another argument for the humanities, right? I mean, when you have a, a perspective that's informed by an understanding of human history, mm -hmm. you have more resources on which to draw when you're thinking about the challenges that we face. Right? Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm watching the clock here, and uh, I, I, you know, this is one of those conversations that could go in many directions and could, could stretch out for hours. Um, but I have a feeling that if this, if this uh, podcast episode is, is uh, you know, three hours long, people are going to start dropping. People are off not going to listen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're not even going to press play to start with. So I did ask you when you and I were emailing the other day. Mm -hmm. I said, "Hey, um, I often ask people to complete a homework assignment." And I wonder if you have maybe a, an excerpt from a book or a poem that you really love that's, mm -hmm. that for you articulates um, either the value of the humanities broadly or the nature of the work you do. And I see that you've got a book sitting here in front of you. I wonder if, uh, if you would be so kind as to share yeah. with us a, a poem. So this was a really hard assignment because <laughs> um, it was like asking me to choose a favorite child, <laughs> except when it comes to books, like I have hundreds instead of just two right so so that was that was really hard but I did the first thing that came to my mind was um, a collection of poetry called Alive at the End of the World by Saeed Jones he's a, uh, a poet and a writer who lives in Columbus Ohio um, but has a, a national reach and it's a five-part poem called If You Had an Off Button I'd Name You Off and what I love about this book is that at the end of the book, Saeed actually gives you little notes on each poem mm. and, and how mm -hmm. he developed it. In this particular poem, he was inspired to write after he read an article in a technology magazine about a robot that had been developed in Japan to feel pain. And so I'll read the poem, but I feel like this poem for me exemplifies the magic of the humanities, but also of the human imagination. Phase one. In a bright room, a scientist builds himself a robot, a boy, and names him Affetto, affection in Italian. The boy's black eyes squint into a sweet blink whenever the man who made him who made him makes him smile. This story is about how we create what we think we need. A child who smiles as if to say, I didn't know joy before I knew you, and you are all I know. Phase two, sleepy and blue lit in your dark, you read an article about little Affetto. In the photo on your phone, the boy whose name means a gentle fondness or liking, is just a lifelike head on a table connected by wires to computers that make him blink and smile as he is affected by the man who made him. You wonder if his father, I mean the scientist, remembers Afeto's smile means, isn't this what you wanted? Phase three, the scientist tells a reporter, here in Japan, we believe all objects have a soul. So a metal robot is no different from a human. He poses for pictures next to the head on the table, then proudly announces it's time to teach Afeto how to suffer. The boy is given hands of his own, which the scientist holds, then caresses, then pinches, 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 
pausing to take notes. The boy winces and the scientist smiles. Afeto, this is what I wanted. Phase four. The scientist, who also happens to be a father, turns Afeto off, the machines off, all the lights in the bright white room off, and goes home to a table where dinner, a wife made of smiles, and an exquisite son are waiting for him. At the table, he lies about his day until the food is gone and his son begins to yawn. He pulls lies from the blue book he, ke he keeps beside his boy's bed. One more story, the boy begs, and the scientist, who is also a father, turns to the tale of the puppet who wished to be real. Hmm. Phase five. The end of the world is a boy who feels all the pain we give him but never bruises, never has a history to show for wh who happened to him. The end of the world is a boy all alone in an electric dark telling himself a story to keep from crying without tears. The end of the world is a boy willing himself to focus on the soft touches and caresses that came before the pain. The end of the world is a boy who doesn't need to be a real boy to grieve like one. Mm. Wow. It's <laughs> pretty cool, right? That's pretty cool. I, and as somebody who grew up reading a lot of science fiction, there's, there's a lot that, that strikes me in there. Um, but I wonder, could you say a little bit about what it, what it is in that poem that, that resonates with you so deeply? What made you pick that one? So when you, I mean, the podcast is called More Human. Mm -hmm. And so you were asking me to think about what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. And so this poem is specifically talking yeah. about machines that humans are trying to make more human. And, and through that one story, you know, Saeed really threads all the, you know, he kind of makes up a story on his own. He imagines that this scientist is also a father and he's thinking through those relationships. In it, he's sort of, Saeed is also sort of threading through some of his own feelings about his existence as mm -hmm. a boy. And um, I don't know, I just loved it because it's mm -hmm. like, you know, that's what makes us human. Our imaginations, our brains, mm -hmm. our ability to spin these stories, to make connections to other things that are happening. Um, and so I just felt like it was, it's the first thing I thought of. Oh, that's beautiful. I, I love that. Um, and you said that Saeed Jones. Saeed Jones. The name of the book again is? Alive at the End of the World. So if folks and are it, interested, that's a, a great one to look up. It's a really striking cover as well. Um, I, and I'll say for the sake of, especially any of our students who might be listening, um, some of you have heard me say this before, um, but uh, as someone who came to poetry late in life, and I am no poet and I'm not a, you know, a great same. expert on it. Same. It's it's kind of nice, isn't it, Rebecca, to you know discover something in <laughs> in adulthood. Um, I, I feel like I'm able to look at poetry with uh, with fresh eyes in a way that some of my English colleagues can't because they've been mm -hmm. studying it so seriously for so long. But um, one thing that that I came to appreciate, somebody taught me, was that poetry is meant to be read aloud. Um, I mm -hmm. made the mistake for many years of trying to get through it too quickly. And if you think of a poem as sort of an, an oral um, art exhibit. Right, just like you would mm -hmm. when you go to the museum and you look at a painting, mm -hmm. the goal isn't to see how many you can look at, how quickly. <laughs> the goal is to kind mm -hmm. of 
contemplate to enter into these things. I think uh, I, I would invite anybody who's uh, uh, interested in, in understanding poetry a little bit better to maybe go back and, and listen to Rebecca read that a couple of times uh, in this conversation. It's, it's worth doing. But thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. Um, and I think you just answered the last question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because okay. I'm, I'm required by contract um, <laughs> with the, uh, the More Human CEO to, uh, to ask this question in every episode. As you know, the More Human podcast is inspired by the conviction that engaging with the humanities enables us to live deeper, richer, more authentically human lives. So I realize to some degree I'm asking you to repeat yourself, but could you say once more, how in your view does the work you're doing here at Ohio Humanities help us to be more human? So I'm going to answer this question by telling a story. And there's a lot of ways that I could answer this question, but I think this story really exemplifies it. Um, So Last year, we funded a program with an organization called Harmony Project. And Harmony Project engages people in making human connections through service, but also through song and music. And one of uh, their initiatives is to, they have this large community choir, but they also do a lot of work in men's and women's prisons throughout Mm -hmm. Ohio. And so one of their goals in working in those programs in the prisons is certainly to enrich the lives of the people that are there, but also to change the narrative Mm. for those of us who are not living inside of a a prison and to make us see their humanity, Mm. but also the people who are living in those situations to see their own humanity. Mm -hmm. And so we funded a a project that allowed them to go from 100 women being served in the uh, Ohio Reformatory for Women to 200 women. Um, It engaged them in a service project that they were doing with uh, children who were in a hospice um, who had HIV and AIDS in South Africa. And it also allowed them to work with a humanities scholar to collect oral histories from one another so that their stories could be shared with other people and that other people who were not living in prison but could learn from their struggles. Um, And so that, to me, is a beautiful example of how the public humanities make us more human because it breaks down these institutional walls, right? Whether it's an academic institution at a university or, a, you know, a prison institution. And it makes us question all of these boundaries and walls that we've constructed mm-hmm. and to connect to the human. And, you know, there's so many things that can help us do that, but Man, that's what makes life so freaking beautiful. That beautiful is exactly the word I was <laughs> going to use. I mean, that's great. Thank you. I, I mean, you've highlighted the human imagination, storytelling, uh, and and this sense of connecting across these different kinds of divides and barriers. And I think that is that is well worth ruminating on. So I think we'll wrap up there. Uh, but Rebecca Brown Asmo, Executive Director of Ohio Humanities, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for everything you do. Oh, it is a pleasure and an honor. And to everybody who's out there, thanks for listening. If you enjoy these conversations, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at mandelcenter at tri-c.edu. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, I hope that this conversation inspires you to be a little bit more human.